Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with our international correspondent, Zofia Zviglinska. How are you, Zofia? Yeah, great. Thank you. Of course. Is this your first uh, episode of the year? I forget. Were you I on? I believe it's my second now. So I've got your two second for January. Okay, cool. <laughs> Well, it's always good to have you. Um, and today we've got a couple of fun things to talk about. We're going to be talking about the uh, some of the backlash that some brands have seen around using generative AI. Um, we'll talk about neighborhood goods shutting down and closing all their stores. And then finally, we're going to talk about HBC, um, Hudson's Bay Company, which is the owner of Saks Fifth Avenue, and some of the issues they're having around financing and payments and how that ties into retail and luxury and all that kind of stuff. Let's start with this AI story. So this was something that Business of Fashion reported on, and I thought it was really interesting because it's something that I felt was going to happen, and we've talked about a little bit on this podcast, but um, there's a lingerie brand called Selkie, and uh, earlier this week, they posted an image to Instagram that was made in part, but not wholly, but uh, you know, just in part with generative AI. There was a pretty swift backlash uh, from their followers. There were hundreds of comments, um, people saying they were unfollowing, that they wouldn't buy anything from Selkie again, that kind of stuff. And it seemed like the brand was a little bit caught off guard by that reaction. Um, they they openly admitted that AI was used in it. They didn't like hide it or anything. So I think they weren't really expecting people to react that way. The founder of the brand, who is also an artist, said it's something she's been working into her art, you know, a couple of times and didn't really think it would be a problem, but then the the audience for the brand got pretty worked up about it. Um, so I have my thoughts on this, um, but Sophia, you've written a good amount about AI. Do you wanna go first and share your take and then I'll tell you mine? Sure, no problem. Um, yeah, so obviously with Selkie, you know, it's quite, I would say a higher end brand. It's one that sells its products at a, um, a higher price point. And yet it has used generative AI to design some of the imagery, especially in its latest um, Valentine collection. Um, and I believe, you know, with generative AI, like the issue with um, with what the customers have said um, around this integration was because of the fact that, you know, these images are most likely not copyrighted. They're something that, you know, is used in the public domain through AI, which at the moment is very much unregulated and the amount of imagery that's there is pretty kind of wide and open and it's causing a lot of headaches for artists you know who have put a lot of effort um into creating original work yeah for the customers it's probably a bit of a slap in the face just to see that you know the things that they're buying for quite high prices are actually being created with generative ai instead of kind of the typical amount of like research that you'd have from you know a relatively independent brand um like selkie yeah, actually, that, and that's a good point. And especially for luxury brands or, you know, think about how many brands sell or use as a selling point the idea that this is handmade or this is, you know, made in this traditional old fashioned way that's maybe not the cheapest or the easiest or the fastest, but it's it's the best, you know, like that, that just because we've got giant machines that can put together a, a purse, you know, in five seconds doesn't mean that the, the super high end brands aren't going to sell the fact that they're going slower and doing it by hand. And I kind of feel like AI is the same thing. Like to me, it's a, it feels, it's, I think I can see why customers would feel like that feels cheap. You know, that doesn't make it seem very prestigious to know that like a computer threw this together. Um, the other thing that you mentioned, and I think this is a, a huge point with generative AI right now, all the, the companies that make these models have pretty openly admitted that they're 
using copyrighted work in their training sets. Um, I think it was an executive from OpenAI basically said like, it wouldn't exist without, like we can't make it without using copyright work, which I thought was such a funny thing to say because I feel like the way he said it was like, well, obviously we have to steal copyrighted works that wouldn't even work without it. And it's like, or you could just not make it. It's weird that that's like only presented as, you know, it's like, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. We just have to steal. So I think there's a lot of, you know, it reminds me a lot of the the crypto or like NFT craze from a couple of years ago and how the brands weren't really, really all in on it. And I don't think they were always super conscious of how their audience would react to it. And just this disconnect between what the companies thought was going to happen and how the average person viewed those things. You know, NFTs had a huge audience and for some brands it, it really worked. But I think for a lot, like most average people, everyday people that I know have no, had no interest in it. And then when a brand that they liked said they were going to start selling NFTs either had like complete ambivalence and they were like, I don't, that doesn't affect me at all or were actively kind of hostile to it, you know? I think with with what Selkie has said and the the designer behind the brand has said is that, you know, the the actual designing of the collection, it takes her about a week. But then the distribution manufacturing takes her a lot longer, like more in the months um, kind of category. So I'm wondering, you know, for an independent brand, how much of like a time saving does generative AI kind of add? And is that kind of a thing that they're having to be um, having to do essentially because of the fact that, you know, designing um, the process and having that time be extended is actually adding so much more to their whole kind of collection design process. And obviously, you know, even with a collection like Selkie, like there's a lot of customers who want their things quickly, who, you know, want it as soon as possible and might not be okay with having an extended shipping time. So obviously if the design is taking longer um, than, you know, usual, I think that this generative AI aspect was potentially kind of a time saver for a lot of them. Um, and it was something that she was using, you know, Photoshop um, and other kind of creator tools beforehand. Um, and I think only recently she's kind of transitioned to using generative AI for this kind of imagery. Yeah, I, th I think you raised such a good point about what elements of the fashion production cycle you use AI for. Um, mm. It seems to me like there's a lot of really boring stuff that no customer is going to care about that you could use it for. Like, I doubt that if they were like, we're using AI to uh, allocate inventory to stores, nobody would care. Like, there would be no, <laughs> I think, um, customer outrage. But if you're like the the creative side, the human side, the reason that, you know, if we think of fashion as art, which I think we should, the reason you connect with it is because, you know, a person designed this, a person made this, and me connecting with it is also me connecting with that person. If you say, oh yeah, we replaced that part with AI. And in, and to be clear, in this case, there was a human being who designed it, Kimberly Gordon, who's the founder of Selkie, using AI. So it's not exactly the same as if it was just like no person was involved. It's purely just an AI creation. But I think when you replace the creative stuff, the part that's like the human element, and you're like, yeah, this is no longer designed thoughtfully by a person. It's now just a computer doing it. I think that is where you get customers feeling like, why would I want to buy this? Then? Like, why would I want to buy something that was designed by nobody? You know, whereas if it's delivered to you or the, you know, we sorted through the data with AI, it's like, that's fine. I, you know, that, that doesn't feel um, quite so corrosive to the cultural side of it to me anyway. 
Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I actually had a couple of interesting conversations around CES, which is the the kind of big technology conference that was happening earlier this month. And a couple of the people actually said, because of this integration of generative AI, you know, what does that kind of mean for fashion? Does that mean that, you know, craftsmanship and kind of human craftsmanship is going to be more valued? Um, Because more, you know, especially mass brands will most likely cut some of their design um, staff or processes simply through using generative AI trained on, you know, loads and loads of different imagery, especially ones which are kind of trend focused. Um, so again, like that, that kind of brings in another question, you know, is this kind of a new chapter for fashion where that kind of human craftsmanship element actually ends up being almost like a differentiator and possibly a kind of value add um, yeah. for brands compared to before? Yeah, I think you're totally right. I could see a world where fast fashion and, and you know, the, the cheap stuff is AI produced and the things that are designed by people have a premium attached to mm. it. I mean, I would certainly, if those were the two options, I would want to go for the one that, you know, another human being was actually involved in. Same as I would for, and I would never want to read an AI written book even if it's really, you know, even if it's indistinguishable, because once I know it's not made by a person, I'm like, why am I reading this? Why am I reading something that nobody even wrote? You know, it, there's, it just removes a valuable element to me. So I can definitely see that being a selling point in the future if we have like completely AI mass produced, um, you know, cheap clothing. Anyway, any other thoughts on this before we move on to our, our next topic? No, I think that it's it's a tough spot to be in. I think, you know, as, as an independent brand, I do feel a bit sorry for Kimberly because obviously I understand that it's a whole kind of different level of responsibility. She doesn't have, you know, as many different areas of the business to rely on. It's most likely just her and a very small team. So I'm wondering, you know, how this is going to impact production um, and design and, you know, especially what that will mean for future kind of young designers or designers that are coming up um, and, you know, putting forward ideas that might as well be kind of stolen by generative AI. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, cool, let's move on to our second topic, uh, neighborhood goods, which is sort of this WeWork kind of um, storefront that would have space for a lot of different DTC brands, a um, couple of years old at this point. They announced that they are shutting down this week. They're closing all the stores uh, and shuttering the company, which is due, I think, to a, a continued environment that's kind of less friendly to DTC brands and that very sort of growth-oriented, um, lose a ton of money, be in debt forever, but that's okay as long as you're growing business model, which has been very much, uh, you know, the way the DTC side of this industry has worked for a long time. And it just feels like that's really not possible anymore. I also think Neighborhood Goods was taking on a lot of risk by being the physical retail sort of operator for a lot of brands. They were taking on a big risk of running the stores, but not necessarily getting the full benefit of it. So it seems it seemed like a risky business model even early on to me. Um, and now that we're in a sort of very different business environment where that like, it's fine to be in debt, it's fine to not be profitable for a long time is like no longer how it works. That's sort of my read on it. Um, what, what do you think, Sophia? Yeah, for me, I think the most important thing here is that, you know, both um, obviously with neighborhood goods and with showfields, you know, when you've got a brand or like, say, 10 or 20 brands in one space, it's very hard to kind of give it, I guess, the 
the focus and the the storyline, story building that you'd need to kind of build out the brand in a customer's mind. Like you most likely will have, you know, a rack of clothes um, and perhaps, you know, a couple of like small text segments or something. But it doesn't kind of bring you into the brand world the same way that, you know, a kind of single store for a brand would, especially, you know, if the brand has to be among, you know, 10 or 20 different brands. I think customers just get a little bit lost. And that might mean, you know, why these kind of places are closing because they just simply don't have the the kind of brand identity um, in each of those places to stand out, you know, single brand, single brand. And I think that there's a lot more kind of success in building out those kind of brands online um, and especially mm-hmm. on social and then possibly, you know, doing pop-ups rather than a kind of continued retail presence um because i think it's just it's it's essentially like a loss making opportunity there yeah it's it totally is and you're right i mean i think and growing online does have its own difficulties um you know instagram ads are so expensive and customer acquisition in general for a, a digital brand is you know really expensive and difficult but it is also less of a upfront capital investment that brick and mortar is, um, which is part of the reason I think a lot of brands wait to have a store for a while is just because it's expensive to set up a company like Neighborhood Goods. And the other one that's a very similar business model is Showfields, which not coincidentally also closed all of its stores and went bankrupt um, late last year. Those are the two I can think of with a similar business model, and they're both US-based. I was wondering, Zofia, is there anything like that in the UK, like a big storefront with a lot of like digital brands that have a little space um, that you know of? I don't think there's anything which works quite along the same way, but I do know about um, Lone Design Club, which has been operating for the last couple of years. And from what I understand, it's been operating successfully, but it works on a slightly different um, kind of retail model. It essentially functions as a pop-up that shows up in different areas around London, I think now in different areas of the UK, every couple of months. Um, And it has a a kind of rotating roster of independent brands, all kind of focused on sustainability, which it kind of pops up and it talks about. I think it's had a lot of success in that way. It's not a kind of consistent storefront in one place all the time. I think it allows it to play the kind of rental and lease market a little bit better um, than, you know, some of these models which have had, you know, very permanent locations, um, which probably ends up, you know, eating into their um, into, into their cost, especially with the kind of rising interest rates. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, one thing I'm going to start asking brands is just, I don't even know how you get a brand off the ground nowadays. Because it used to be, you know, you could get into Saks Fifth Avenue or get into Selfridges or something. You get into a good department store and then like, boom, you're set. Then it became, uh, no, you don't have to do that. You can just go online and like be DTC, set up Shopify and like start advertising on Instagram and that's a way. And now it feels like both of those are kind of much more difficult than they used to be. So wondering like, what is even the way that that a new brand gets off the ground now? If you're listening to this and you are a new brand and you have some thoughts about this, please, you can DM me or something. I, I'm very interested to hear. Uh, last thing I want to talk about is um, HBC, Hudson's Bay Company, and also Saks Fifth Avenue, which HBC owns. Um, we talked about this a little bit. There was a, a report this week from Bloomberg that HBC is working on refinancing a $1.3 billion loan. They seem to be struggling a little bit with liquidity and cash flow. Uh, there was, um, you know, in November of last year, Saks Fifth Avenue was accused by multiple brands of not paying their 
the brands basically for months at a time. I think it's not totally abnormal to be, you know, to have as a brand working with a department store to wait a couple weeks or something, or even, you know, a month to get your payment. But it seems like Saks was just really, really behind in like a concerning way. Um, a lot of brands were reducing the amount of inventory that they were sending to Saks because of the long delays in payment. And then at the time in November, HBC uh, sold or monetized, I think, about $340 million worth of real estate to sort of help get the cash to make those payments. And now they're refinancing another $1.3 billion. It just seems like they're having a lot of trouble. Um, I have some theories on why this could be happening, uh, but how about you go first, Sophia? What do you think of of the situation for Saks and also just kind of luxury retail in general? Yeah, it seems like it's taking on water in a big way. And honestly, I mean, it's, it's really tough because after the pandemic, I think a lot of these kind of multi-brand kind of mass luxury retailers struggled. And obviously, you know, some of them closed down. And I think that even now, it's kind of hard for them to to grow in the same way that they did pre-pandemic. And then obviously nowadays there's been so many different kind of rising associated costs. I think most recently, like the the interest rate aspect has just been a real kind of headache for anyone with, um, you know, permanent kind of retail locations, but it's also putting pressure on inventory, on operations. um, And obviously, you know, consumers are going to be spending less as well if there is um, increased interest rates as well. So I think that that's kind of, been yeah a perfect storm I think of of them kind of not doing as well as they had previously and I think they still haven't cracked the formula as to how to make it work uh post-pandemic yeah no I, I think you're totally right there's like the general um retail side which I think is struggling with high interest rates and um stuff like that and then there's also the luxury side which is you know as we've seen even LVMH and caring are seeing slowdowns in in spending so yeah it feels like a difficult time for for both sides of the business that make up Saks. Um, and then also, it's kind of like we were talking about with neighborhood goods. I just feel like we're not in an environment where you can be in the red and not pay your vendors and be in debt and like, it's all good. You know, it's not like that anymore. You you gotta start, <laughs> you gotta pay up basically, it feels like for a lot of brands, which again goes back to the thing of like, how do you get off the ground if you, you know, you used to be able, if you got picked up by Saks, if you got your handbag or your clothes, whatever, in Saks, that's huge. That's a huge step for a brand. But now imagine you're a new brand, you make your first collection, Saks buys it, and then they don't pay you. You know, it's like, then what is even the point of getting in there? So yeah, I don't know what exactly is going to happen here. Um, it does feel like luxury, the whole sector was a little unprepared for just how how slow the slowdown of the last couple of months has been. Um, mm. Maybe it will pick back up, but I'm not sure unless there's some bigger kind of economic changes, uh, both in the U.S. and I'm sure it's similar in the U.K. as well. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think that maybe department stores here are my slightly less impacted, but there has been you know, some issues with it previously. Um, so I can imagine that that would be working exactly the same way. I do also think in the US, like there's been so many kind of independent, you know, showrooms and stores and especially those kind of outside of the capital um, that are doing relatively well, kind of smaller, more nimble. So I'm wondering if also, you know, Saks is so big and most many ways it's hard to um, kind of retrofit a business like that to become 
super technologically advanced to kind of make the efficiencies across all sides of the business. And I think that that's probably also causing them to have so many different costs, which is, again, reason why they've got so many delayed payments. But I do think that, you know, reputationally, if you're not able to make those payments, then you're you're going to lose the the trust of the brands that you work with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's a good note to end it on. Uh, thank you for being here, Zofia. Always a good conversation. So for a future for a future Glossy Week in Review episode, um, we are talking about doing our first mailbag episode where we answer listener questions uh, or talk about topics suggested by listeners. Um, if you are listening to this and you have anything you'd like me and Jill or me and Zofia to talk about in a future episode, questions you want us to pick apart or topics you want us to dive into, why don't you send us a DM on Instagram at Glossy Co. Or you can also email me. My my Glossy email is just danny at glossy.co. So send your, your listener questions, your suggestions there. And uh, in a future episode, maybe in a couple of weeks, possibly after New York Fashion Week, we will do a mailbag episode and we'll talk about your questions uh, from our wonderful listeners. But until then, please give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to this. That helps us out so much. Um, and don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because you'll hear our week in review episodes every Friday and you'll hear uh, cool industry insider interviews every Wednesday. Um, but until then, thank you for listening. 